Hi everyone, today we will explore the information warfare between Ukraine and Russia from the marketing perspective. I've invited my partner Ellie, who is an expert in marketing and sales, to share his thoughts on the messages shared on the news and social media. We'll discuss who the target audience was, which messages worked and why. My name is Yael Feiner, I'm the host and producer of the show. Don't forget to subscribe for updates on future episodes and my other projects. Well, hello everyone. This is another episode in the Effective Conversation podcast, uh, again with Ellie Feiner, because people asked about you. They said they want to listen to you. So I said, okay, 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 okay. I'll set it up. So here you are again. Nice, <laughs> nice to be here. It's like, it's not that we never talk to each other, but we typically don't do it in English. And we typically do it without the intention of other people listening to us as well. So... So no we'll names, keep... no name dropping. <laughs> no, okay, no name dropping. So what's on the list today? So in the last two and a half years, you, you were learning a lot and reading a lot about marketing and became a marketer expert yourself. And, and in this time, in the last year, Ukraine war started. And as we watched the things going on there, we saw how public... Opinion are changing all the time due to the stories that the governments are saying. And we know that that stories are very critical to shape minds and to gain followers and to gain support in war. So I wanted you to talk about it because it's a very interesting topic. Go ahead. <sighs> so um, modern wars are often called hybrid wars. Because they have a bunch of different things going on at the same time in, in the war. There's the, the actual like physical war, which happens on the ground, in the air, and at sea, and sometimes in space. There is a kind of financial and economic war, which is applying pressure, for example, on Russia, is part of this war. Uh, and at the same time, providing financial support to Ukraine is also part of this war because the country that runs out of funds uh, runs out of its ability to wage war. Uh, another piece that we often don't take as much into consideration is the information space. And that's as much part of, of the war as is um, anywhere else, as is uh, the other parts. So... I think to anyone who's followed the, the, the war in Ukraine, it has been obvious that whatever the Ukrainians are doing, somehow they are doing it well. They've gotten a lot of support. I don't think a lot of people in the West, um, maybe they heard the word Ukraine, maybe they kind of roughly knew that it was somewhere near Russia, but nobody really paid attention to Ukraine as a country, to the Ukrainians as a people. Uh, to the Ukrainian president, uh, Zelensky, as a person worth paying attention to or, or listening to, uh, all of that only started with the war. And it basically started with the first, this ingenious marketing moment where Zelensky and his cabinet, they stepped out of their bunker on February 24th at night. Uh, they went to the streets of Kiev where the, the background is recognizable to anyone who has ever been there and definitely to the people of Ukraine. And he said, I'm here, the president is here, everyone's here, we're staying here, we're not going away, uh, which was his response to the rumors. Again, the rumors are also part of the information warfare space. There were rumors circulated by 
by the Russian side that uh, Zelensky will run away, that he would um, capitulate, he would never stay. Um, they have teams of assassins en route uh, to capture him or to execute him. And to counter all of that, he showed a moment of of personal bravery, but it was more than that. There was a deliberate choice of, there was no professional. So this this was a video with no professional lighting. It was done with like a simple phone um, that he obviously held in his hand. It was even kind of shaking a little bit. The idea was to counteract the very polished messages and the very kind of deliberate messaging that was coming out of the Russian side to counteract that with something that seems completely authentic. Now, it seems completely authentic in the specific context of social media videos in this day and age, right? It's like no filters. This was a hashtag on Instagram for a while. There's like yeah. all these fake things and now this is real. So this was an attempt to to use that and a successful attempt to use that narrative that something that's real, something that's shot with a phone, uh, something that seems unscripted is more true than something that, you know, official with with like a nice shirt and a tie in a nicely lit background. So in and, a way, after a, a long years that the Russian tried to destabilize the truth with fake news, he thought about that very deeply and decided to show something that is not well done to give it the, the feeling of the sense of being really true. Exactly. Uh, and I think, we're, yeah. I think we're in the process of redefining what truth is. Um, before, I think, 2016 or before Trump came to power, before these things started happening, the, the whole conversation about fake news and about uh, truth being a relative thing, before that started, there was this sense that some things are true and some things are false, and it's possible to determine which one is which. Um, and not everybody believed the same kind of truth. Like, obviously, there were different people with different opinions about things, um, each believing this is true, uh, whatever their worldview is. But there was a sense, I think, in the world there that there is such a thing as truth. And, and there is such that, a thing as facts, right? And there, there, there is that such a thing as facts. If we will learn a lot and research, we will get to, to the truth we'll get, by we'll learning the about the facts. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Now... I personally still believe that's true for the most part, but this is not the point. This this is about the change in the definition of what truth is. So let's say before 2016, truth was about facts. Um, after 2016 and up to maybe 2020, maybe there is no such thing as um, truth. And maybe there's just like... I'll give you alternative facts or there's like there's fake news and then there's fake news about fake news and the whole thing became really muddled. But there is still something, I think, deeply human within us that trusts authenticity and honesty. So honesty is different from fact. It's not the same thing. It's 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 the exposure of the human soul. It's not about whether gravity is true or not. It's about me being afraid of falling down. Two separate things. Like gravity may, may not be a real thing, but my fear might be real, and I may convey my fear about um, falling down as real, and that would be perceived as true. So this is what Zelensky was playing on, and I don't like. I don't want to. I really respect the guy, both as a professional 
media person, so as a president and as a person, for everything I've seen, he actually is very authentic and actually is very courageous. But I also think it would be incorrect to say this was a spontaneous moment that was not planned, that was not thought out. Like there's the, the country of 45 million people was at stake. Obviously, um, he probably didn't make like obviously he didn't make that decision on his own. Um, and obviously, and... I think they knew some information. They had some intel about Russia, uh, and they knew they can win, or they they knew the Russia is not as it presents itself to be. <laughs> well, that's that's a that's a different topic. Um, just briefly in in brackets, everyone in the West thought that Russia is going to take Ukraine within a few days. Russia thought that they would be able to do that. Almost everyone in Ukraine knew that to be false. So it's a completely different discussion. How did how did the people in Ukraine knew they could withstand the Russian uh, assault? And why did the West make such a grievous mistake estimating the, the relative strengths of yeah, both countries? This is another topic. It's a separate, it's like, it's a really interesting topic, but it's not a marketing topic. Uh, the marketing bit is about, so Ukraine as a whole and Zelensky as the president, they put their biggest bet on honesty, transparency, and truth, or at least being perceived as being fully true. That is not to say that uh, Ukraine doesn't use um, copious amounts of propaganda and that they very deliberately use the information space, but they bet on honesty and transparency and, and kind of the personal touch. It's true. It's true for their their entire political um, elite. So Zelensky, when you say about the pro- the Ukrainian propaganda, you have something in mind, or you just say it because, of course, they use it. Uh, no, there's. I, I've I've noticed a few situations like this before during the war. So I um, listen almost daily to. Uh, there are a couple of guys. One's a Russian, uh, or I'd say a Russian Jew, uh, and um, the other the other is Ukrainian a very popular show in the Russian language about the war. Uh, Fagin and Arstovich, for if any one of you understands Russian, it's a really good show to listen to. If you don't, there are some translations and, and uh, summaries posted on Twitter uh, from the show. Anyway, um, Arstovich is a, he is the advisor to the head of the office of the president in Ukraine, something like that. So he has like a semi-official position. And he definitely used some deliberate uh, misinformation throughout this war. So things he said to be true or to be false are actually not true. For example, mm-hmm. uh, it's common knowledge that Ukraine has been doing uh, attacks deep inside Russian territory, um, both in airfields and, mm-hmm. and some um, arms depots and stuff like that. But the official position of the Ukrainian government is that they don't do that. Mm-hmm. So Arstovich has been very consistent in saying, oh, somebody probably smoked where they shouldn't have um, or they um, didn't maintain the proper uh, rules of uh, fire mitigation or whatever. We don't know what happened there, but there seems to be something burning out there and there seems to be something exploding out here. And of course, we're happy that it's happening, but we had nothing to do with this. Now, I find it to be normal and not misinformation when the official don't admit armies attack for political reasons. I don't see that as lying, but maybe I'm wrong here. I don't mean it to be a lie. That's not what I mean. I mean, it is deliberate misinformation. Um, mm-hmm. And 
the, the funny thing is he says it with a smile and it's obvious what he means by saying it, but the words are, um, yeah. you can't catch him saying, admitting that the Ukrainian, uh, the Ukrainians are doing something deep within the Russian territory. That's like, that's, but that's kind of the, the smaller part of that. Okay. The other thing he said, um, around there was, um, um, during the summer, there were two major attacks that the, uh, uh, that the Ukrainian could do. Um, it doesn't matter exactly where it is, but like there was a there was a potential uh, area of attack towards the south, toward a city called Kherson, and a potential um, area of attack towards the east, uh, a city called Kharkiv. And everybody was trying to figure out where they're going to attack. And um, I believe I'm, I'm I may be misremembering, but I believe Aristovich repeatedly saying that. Um, the most logical place to attack would be the south, and the most interesting, the most preparations are being done in the south. And that it seems like in the east nothing is happening, and it seems like in the east there is no concentration of forces. And to the best of my knowledge, uh, it doesn't look like that's logical, uh, and so on and so forth. And eventually, they attacked in the east <laughs> with a lot of force and broke through yeah. the Russian line. So there, there was. Now I have no doubt that he knew exactly what they were planning. Yeah. And that this was part of a deliberate information uh, warfare tactic to uh, to the Russians about this, which caused the Russians to concentrate their forces in the south this and is abandon the their positions in the east. Strategic war uh, tactic. So I think it's sure. It's. Yeah. I don't. I don't mean. I don't. I don't mean to say that it, this is ethically wrong or somehow morally ambiguous. I'm yeah. just saying that this is deliberate and this is warfare in the But would you call it space. propaganda? Um, sure, because propaganda yeah. is not only a negative thing. Propaganda is not necessarily this thing that convinces people in things that are untrue in order to control people or to, to take away their freedoms. This is one form of propaganda. This is what we know about from Soviet Union. This is what people are accusing the, some sections in the United States of doing. Mm -hmm. uh, but propaganda is just, at least in my understanding, it's just the use of information to influence opinion, right? And using information to influence opinion, it's propaganda, it's marketing, um, it could be used for the good. It could be used for the bad. It could be yeah. used by the good guys uh, for in in the name of the good, and it could be used by the bad guys in the name of yeah. the bad. It doesn't matter. Um, so, I think everyone knows, uh, listening to the podcast, that I'm wholeheartedly supporting Ukraine. And when I say they use propaganda and they use information warfare, I am I mean it with respect. It's not a. It's not criticism. I don't mean they shouldn't be doing this. I mean they are doing this and they're doing this well, and it's very effective. Now the other piece um, of marketing, and again, this is it's awful to call it marketing, but um, once the atrocities in Bucha and, and Irpin became known, um, Ukraine milked it for all it's worth. So the videos from these places, the videos of Zelensky with his um, um, face full of pain visiting there, the, um, the photographs of mutilated bodies and all of these things, these are horrible, horrible things. But it's also a tool in the information warfare, and they used it. 
And the actual biggest turnaround in this war where where Europe and, and especially Germany turned to support Ukraine with finances, with arms, with just political support across the board was when the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz visited Kiev and they took him to see Bucha and Irpin. Right. And there is a deep difference between seeing these images, you know, on your computer screen and actually being there. Apparently, because his opinions about what the war is, is doing and how Germany should behave toward Ukraine and how Germany changed, should behave yeah. toward Russia changed, changed overnight after that. There was like the things he said before were completely different from the things he said after. Yeah, and that was such a brilliant way to fight the misinformation war executed by Russia that actually accused Ukrainian to do those atrocities to their own people. And just like you said, seeing those pictures through the screen when you don't understand the language and when you can't tell if you're looking at a Russian soldier or Ukrainian soldier, it's so confusing. And Putin used that confusion, tried to use that confusion to his advantage. What other marketing tools or techniques Ukrainian use? So I want to I wanna actually switch to Russia for a little bit, because from the Western point of view, if we look at how Russia is doing in terms of its marketing efforts, it seems that they're failing, right? Nobody supports Russia. Everyone has left Russia. No one's, or not no one, but very few people kind of defend Russia. Yeah, very few people, very few countries. Um, but that's a profound misunderstanding of who Russia is targeting its marketing campaigns towards. So Russia has for a very long time and um, maybe since forever, its entire foreign policy was aimed at pacifying and working with the ideas of the Russian people. So it, it took me a long time to, to grasp this, this idea because foreign policy is supposed to be foreign policy, right? Like how do you, as a country relate to other countries, which is supposed to impact other countries. Yeah. But in the particular situation of Russia, and it's kind of typical to um, to centralized governments, like non-democratic governments, is that a lot of the things they do are directed towards managing the the ideas and thoughts and perceptions of the Russian population. So for example, and this is contradicting because you think a tyrant would do whatever he wants, but we learned that at, in this war we learned that a tyrant actually is really dependent on his people. Exactly. So it's a bit of a tangent, but if if people really, really don't like their whatever prime minister or president in a democratic state, then the worst thing usually that will happen is next election someone else gets elected. That's like. That's like the toppling of a government. But if you have a tyrant or you have a dictatorial um, uh, type of government or a, an almost dictatorial type of government where you, you sometimes have elections, but they're not real, like when the government loses support of the people in a major mm -hmm. way, then what you have is a bloody revolution. It's not just a change of government, uh, some protests and a nice little election, and then for four years you have a different, or eight years, or 16 years you have a different government. No, that's not what happens. The whole thing collapses. Like These right. things, they don't, they don't fizzle. They implode or explode. Um, 
Syria was like that. The, uh, the Soviet Union was like that. Libya was like that yeah. with Gaddafi. Uh, it's like, it's all over. It's these, these really, really strong men who typically men who control their country with, with an iron fist are actually really dependent on the people believing that they can still keep their power and that they're doing the right thing. So for Putin, the belief of the Russian people that he can wage any war anywhere and that Russia is a really strong country militarily was a core core belief. Um, the fact that they're fighting this totally evil Nazi regime in Ukraine was a necessary core belief to keep the stability of the Russian regime. So just a minute, just to make things clear, we're not saying uh, Ukrainians are Nazis. We're saying that this is the way Russia marketed her uh, war against Ukraine to justify it, to justify to their people. Yeah, so they, they had, they had a, a couple of things there. First of all, they didn't call it a war and they arrested anyone who called it a war. I don't think they do it anymore. Um, but for, a, for quite a long time, anybody who went out into the streets to protest and to say, stop the war, they would take them away, not because of the word stop, but because of the word war. This is not a war. This is a special military operation. It's a limited conflict, which is dealing with um, Ukraine is actually not Ukraine. So the, there are a few pieces. Ukraine is actually not Ukraine. It's not a country. It's not a people. It's just this lost piece of the Russian empire uh, that needs to be reunited. We are... Um, the old USSR that just lost some pieces of it. We're reestablishing the old glory of the USSR or the Russian Empire, if you go farther back. Um, Ukrainians are not a people. Ukraine is not a country. Uh, Zelensky is not an actual president. He is a, some sort of comedian or clown or, or imposter or something like that. Uh, him and the people surrounding him are, are Nazis. Um, and they are these evil people who took control of these Russians who are in Ukraine and are trying to eradicate them. And we are going to do a little kind of nice special military operation, go in, pluck those people out, put back the right people into government. The people in Ukraine will be happy. Ukraine and Russia will be uh, together once again, and so on and so on and so forth. And I got to tell you, that message resonated very, very powerfully with a lot of people in Russia. Not everybody. It resonated well, way better with older people. It didn't quite resonate with people who actually have access to the internet and have been exposed to, you know, to the English-speaking world. Uh, but it did resonate with a lot of people. Now, Russia has, um, it doesn't have total control over media. Okay, so just to make things clear, so this message, those stories were directed at to the Russian people, not to the world community. And the idea is to keep the support from within, to keep the support in Putin, in the government, and at the price of having all the sanctions, at the price of losing support from the West and not trying to change the West mind. Is is that right? Like they actually prioritize that knowingly and with full awareness? When you say that they were okay with losing support from the West, that is not true. They did not take that risk because they believed they would win this war within a week. The sanctions would not have time to take place and they would just establish the new 
rules, which is uh, Ukraine politically closer to Russia, basically a part or in the process of becoming a part of the Russian Federation, back the way it used to be in the Soviet Union, uh, and the West would just not react. The West would just let it happen. And if Russia did win the the, the, the special military operation within a week or two, yeah. the West probably wouldn't have reacted because the West only started reacting like four months into yeah. the war. Okay, but four months into the war, even one month, it, this idea he exploded to in, in the Russian faces and they realized that they didn't achieve their goal so, so quickly as they hoped. <laughs> Right. Well, as it usually as it usually happens when when someone tries something and it doesn't work out, they tend to dig in their heels and try even harder. Right. Very but they few never people... change their strategy to address and change the mind of, of the West. Yeah. So their attempt at information warfare with the West was not about the justification for the war. It was about how dangerous it was to oppose Russia. It's dangerous to oppose Russia because Russia has a huge nuclear arsenal. And if you only get into that, it's going to be World War III and everyone will burn uh, in the fires of hell. It's dangerous to oppose Russia because Russia supplies natural gas to all of Europe. And if uh, you push it, then the Europeans will freeze to death. Um, It's ridiculous to oppose Russia because it's the second uh, strongest army in the world. And like, how could you even imagine that a small, tiny, puny country like Ukraine could stand up to that and so on and so forth. But this was um, so this they did do in the Western space. They primarily did that by convincing specific spokespeople within the Western media space to do that for them. But they did push this message. But compared to the massive information campaign they were running within Russia, it was really small and unsuccessful. But what yeah. they did within Russia so far has been very successful. The, the war has a very, I think it's about 70% of support at this point, dropped from maybe about 90, but still very high, definitely more than half. Like Even though in the West, it's, like, it's completely obvious that this is even if Russia had some justifications to go to war, like internally, calling it a just war or, or somehow the right thing to do is just ridiculous by this point. Okay, so I have a question now. If I remember correctly, there was time that we saw on the news, people are fleeing the country, refusing to go to the war, refusing to fight, mass arrests, protests on the streets. Right? So did it change? Was it like that and it changed? So what changed it? Or that the Kremlin just gets more support right now? Well, this is, I think this is part of the Ukrainian information warfare. There definitely are some signs of resistance to the war within the Russian Federation. But they are, like the Ukrainian side always emphasizes that the tears within the Russian society and the conflict. we are waiting that Russia will collapse. Yeah, yeah, will collapse. We'll f- f- yeah, because if Russia collapses, then the war will be over and everybody will be happy. Not really, but it's a different topic. Um, but I think that overall, it's not significant. Yes, a few hundred thousand men left Russia um, because of the global or so-called partial mobilization, and maybe a few hundred thousand more will still leave. I'm not convinced that these people are leaving because they're opposed to the war. If they would leave, uh, or if they did leave because they were opposed to the war, they would do it sooner. Yeah, uh, They leave because this war 
would potentially touch their personal lives. Um, it's one thing to support the war from the comfort of your couch watching it on TV, and it's a completely different thing to be called into service, given a Kalashnikov, and uh, and and sent to the front basically to die because Russia is losing people by the by the tens of thousands on the front. So um, I don't think this indicates lack of support for the war in Russia. Staying in Russia and supporting the war are two separate things. You can stay in Russia and support the war. You can leave Russia and still support the war. Mm. The fact that a lot of people left Russia does not mean support for the war is waning. It just means that people don't want to die. It's a different thing. Right. I, I thought maybe you want to mention your friend that uh, you met on Twitter and he's Russian and he's coming back to Moscow to build a business and that the perspective of the West that uh, they have nothing there, they have no food because of the sanction and the life is so terrible over there and how, uh, how we see that and what actually is going on. Yeah, he came back to Moscow and he's starting a business there. And when I said, how can you do that? Do you have like even functioning services? Like, can you register a business right now in Russia? Because I didn't know. And, you know, yeah, most of, I get most of my information from Russian speaking Ukrainian sources. So listening to those sources, it sounds like, oh, you know, the whole Russia is a, a total shit show. There's you, you can't do anything. Uh, but from what this guy told me, it's only as much a shit show as it always was. Like government officials and government agencies and whatever registering a business, it's slow. You need to bribe them sometimes because that's how things get smoothed over. But it didn't stop functioning. Like the country didn't stop functioning. Um, there's food to buy. Yeah. Uh, and you can even get electronics, even despite the ban on electronic sales to, to Russia. So it's, it's, it, it, it hasn't stopped. And as another example of that, um, you and I talked about in the past, Iran had, it's been under all kinds of restrictions and bans for over 40 years. And yet they have more or less a functioning economy, a more or less functioning education system. They have a nice industry. And yeah. Nuclear. And they, they're progressing with their um, desires for nuclear weaponry. So, you know, it's like, the economic part of warfare is effective, but only up to a point. Okay, I think we talked enough about the Russians messaging to their own people. Let's switch to the Ukrainian side. And you were mentioning they chose to to do everything through truth, honesty, authenticity. And I remember there was one parliament member, Akira, or Akira, and she just said, I just finished Pilates class and uh, something like that. And it was so authentic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kira Rudik. Yeah, like her um, original uh, short videos on Twitter, the first days of the war, were she was trying to convey she has excellent, brilliant English and she's a beautiful woman too. So that all of these things work when you're trying to address the West. And she was describing her life in Kiev before the war to sound like, just like any Western um, accomplished woman would do. And she told, you know, two days ago, I was going to my Pilates class. And today I'm hiding in the, in the bunker and I'm learning how to shoot an AK-47. And she would show like her, you know, her broken fingernails and AK-47 and, and her yoga pants, uh, all in kind of the same shot. 
uh, yeah. to, to Which was show. brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. It's brilliant, right? It's brilliant. Now, I don't know if she thought of that, if there's a whole marketing team behind her that kind of scripted the whole thing, but the message was brilliant. And the message was, this is, it's not some godforsaken country in the middle of nowhere. This is the West. This is the exact same thing that would happen in any, like if this would to, were to happen in any capital city in Europe or in the United States, this is what it would look like. This is not, this is not sand and, and um, I, I don't know, moss pits. It's like, this is a city, a modern city with modern amenities and modern people. Yes. And Ukraine also wanted to join and get closer to the EU and to the West and to Europe and leave behind Russia. And Which is the whole, so just, I want to pause on this because this is the entire thing about this war. So Ukraine definitely used to be a part of USSR. And when the USSR broke apart, Ukraine was very, very close to Russia for a very long time. Yep. And then they had two revolutions. They called them the Maidans. A Maidan is like a big square in um, in Kiev. Uh, two major revolutions. I think one was in 2008. The other was in 2012, where the people demanded moving away from Russia and moving closer to uh, to Europe. Now, the Russians obviously claim that this was sponsored and supported by the European Union and by the United States, but it seems that this was the, the kind of the popular, popular movement because the elections um, after that elected presidents who were pro-European. But for Russia, this was inconceivable. It's like it's like your teenager kid who lives in a room in your house declares independence of this room in your house and and says no this this room belongs to the neighbors. This is like this is the level of ridiculousness from the Russian point of view. This is like it's a room in our house. How could you say that it's part of this other house that's over on the other side of the street? Um uh, because Europe was always on the other side. Yeah. Especially West Europe. Um so this is what Russia is fighting against, and this is what Ukraine is fighting for, right? Yeah. Because from the Ukrainian perspective, being part of the EU is not subjugating themselves to a new kind of union. It's being free and freely choosing to be a part of this thing that is more beneficial to them. Yes, and just another thing to mention that this strategy worked so well and so amazingly being authentic as a means to fight the disinformation that the Russians spreading is that Other countries were attacked by Russia uh, not so long ago, and the West didn't uh, blink an eye. Nobody cared. And for Ukraine, it was different. So their strategy actually really, really worked, right? True. They did it twice in Chechnya. They did it uh, once in uh, Georgia. Um, and they never, none of these countries could get as much support. And the difference, I believe is in the information warfare space yes they got case. ukraine gathered enough support and enough sympathy from the world to be able to withstand the russian onslaught it's so ukrainians are, are great fighters and they're really courageous people and they did an amazing job by themselves against the russians for the first um, two or three months of the war with just just a little bit of of american weaponry but They would not have been able to withstand the Russian assault without that support. So however courageous they may be, and yeah. however smart their generals may be, and however creative their people may be, 
the piece of getting the support from the West was crucial. The fact that Zelensky went and talked in front of, I think, every legislative assembly in the world, more or less, um, to get support from each and every country specifically. It's just such an amazing, this is not information warfare exactly. It's more like a diplomatic aspect of it. But that was an incredible effort with, with tremendous success. Right? Like and he, he did something very special. He did something so unique in a way that he he's the weak. He's asking for support, but he's staying the strong at the same time. Yeah. Like presenting like himself honorable. like he's, we... he's not he's not begging for support. He was like um the the main message was we can win. We have we have the people, we have the skills, we have the courage, and we have the will to sacrifice that would allow us to win, but we cannot do this without your support, your money, and your weapons. So he really divided the responsibility. Like, this is what we can do. We're not asking for your soldiers, we're not asking for your blood, and we're not asking for your planes in the air. We're asking for weapons, and we don't even, we're not even asking for you to train us to use these weapons. We'll figure it out. Just, <laughs> Let's give us the damn hardware. Yeah. And that was a really powerful message because, like you said, um, it it's a very inspiring message. Like, I can win this fight if you give me a sword because the people attacking me have swords. But if, I, if I'm forced to fight with my fists, I still will do that, but I will not win. And then there is uh, the next piece. Um, from the start of the war, Zelensky and the entire kind of Ukrainian information space, they painted Ukraine as the doorway to Europe. So their message was, if if Ukraine falls, you all are next. Now, yeah. the people close to Ukraine, Poland in particular, and, and the Baltic states, Lithuania, Estonia, and, and Latvia, um, they understood this. <laughs> They were part of or uh, under the influence of Russia or the USSR for a very long time. They knew that Russia's aspirations don't end with Ukraine. They yeah. don't end at all. Like for them, you know, half of Germany was under the influence of USSR and they have aspirations for the entire world. So um, that message, first of all, resonated with these states. But then it also slowly, bit by bit, started to resonate with the rest of Europe. So the message... Ukraine is part of Europe, and it's the doorway to the rest of Europe, and we are paying in our blood to protect you guys because you're next, and that's why you need to give us weapons. Because if you don't give us weapons, then you will pay in blood as well. And this yeah. was a really powerful message. It took a few months <laughs> for it to kind of land, but once it landed, uh, it landed not just in Europe, it landed in the United States as well. Because yeah. the message is like, it's billions of dollars in weaponry. Yes, that is true. But if we don't pay the billions of dollars in weaponry now, now, and yeah. now then it's going to be hundreds of thousands of soldiers later, right? Yeah. That's that's going to be the 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 actual cost. Um, so it's a very well crafted message, message that really worked well. Yeah, we are doing this work for you. We are paying with blood for you. So the only thing you need to do is give us the weapons and money. Yeah. Thanks for sticking with us. Understanding marketing is all about figuring out what makes us tick and what makes us buy stuff, connect with our values, or even do harm. Knowing more about marketing makes us a better player in the game of life. It also helps us not to get scammed and become more resilient. We learned a lot from this journey, and we hope you did too. If you have any questions for Ellie, hit him up on Twitter, at Finer Ellie. 
you can find the links in the description. And don't forget to subscribe and share the show with your friends. Let's make the world a better place together.